What are the duties of the house band as a priest of the home and the wife as his helpmate? I'd probably let the lemons take the first crack at it. All right, so when you study the book Adventist Home and it talks about being the priest, one beautiful text of scripture you can consider is Hebrews chapter 5. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 5 something about the priest. And this is a very easy thing for us to understand when we think about the house band being a priest in the household. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. One of the functions of the priest is that he would offer gifts and sacrifices that would bring about atonement. In like manner, the husband is to function as a priest in his household. He is the one that is to present the gift of God, which is the grace that has been given to us through Jesus Christ on behalf of his family. He is to be a living example of that. He is not just to preach it. He is to live that example, to give of himself for the helping and admonition and strengthening of both his bride as well as his children. The Bible shows us a beautiful example of this in uh, Job chapter 1, where Job, uh, even when his children were still sleeping, Job would get up and he would pray for his family members, and he would pray that just in case they might have fallen into sin, that God would be merciful and have grace upon them. And so when we think about being a priest, we think about an intercessor, someone who is mediating on behalf of another. And that is what the husband should be as a priest of his household, is one who mediates on behalf of his family, praying to God, asking for God's grace, seeking God's grace, and being an extension of God's grace towards his family members, guiding them in spiritual things, showing them that these are the standards of God and his law, and these things are to be lived out in our home. And so the house band being the priest creates the spiritual atmosphere for his home, and he is to demonstrate that love and power of the gospel to his family. That's an in-short answer. And you, now it also said... About the wife as a helpmeet? The wife as a helpmeet. Yes, to, in light of what my husband said, to follow through with the things that is established in the home. Um, it's very important with the husband and uh, wife that there is a united front. Um, sometimes in homes, uh, there's differences, and the children see this, and it, it, it just sets such a bad example to the children. So it's important that, you know, when husband and wife, when Dwayne and I, when we establish uh, what we want to follow in the word um, at home, that as he sets the law that I, you know, make sure it's followed through. It's not a situation where he creates it. I'm in, I'm in complete agreement because we're both serving the Lord. So we're in complete agreement. So we make sure if he's not there, then I'm following through. Or just making sure that everything is followed through according, and we're both in agreement. So the children don't see or think, okay, they don't see division, correct? Mm -hmm. And sometimes the child will go to one parent and not go to the other. I mean, it just sets, it opens the door for so many things. But that's just one area. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And just to make an announcement again, we do have papers, so if you're not able to text, please raise your hand. We'll get a paper to you, and then you can submit your question that way. Second question, 
How would you relate to a divorce due to domestic violence? Going through all the counseling and church protocol and yet not getting the godly results some divorces are due um, to keep the saintly and spirituality God intended one to have. Lemons? <laughs> Who would like to take a it wasn't addressed to one particular person, so anyone can Give me a favor. Answer. Can you ask it one more time? Sure. Read it one more time. How would you relate to divorce due to domestic violence? Going through all the counseling and church protocol and yet not getting godly results. Some divorces are due, uh, or I'm, guess, I'm guessing it's, uh, some divorces are to mm. keep sanctity and spirituality God intended one to have. Okay, so <clears throat> there is a, a certain term that's used in theological realms, and it's called situational ethics. Situational ethics. In other words, based on the situation, what should we do? Um, situational ethics can become very dangerous because what happens is, based on the situation or the circumstance, the clear words of God can somehow be bent, uh, changed, manipulated, or what have you. Listen, there is no sin that can surprise God. When the Lord puts a counsel in his word, we do not have to change that word to address that situation. And so domestic abuse is terrible. And the fact that the church and the leaders have failed that individual is also terrible. But if this individual understands the word of God, and if they have looked at what the Bible says as it relates to God's decision for divorce, and God makes it not only partially but crystal clear that the only reason that he will allow one to divorce another is based on his word that clearly says for infidelity, adultery, fornication. This is all that we have. Ellen White brings this out even more clearly in Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce. And she makes it very clear that the only reason that God will endorse a divorce is for the reason of adultery. Then we don't have any need to change that. Now again, as stated earlier, that person should remove themselves from that dangerous environment. No question about it. That is not even an issue. But the fact that they would go ahead and annul that, because there are many married couples, many, that were in not just verbally, not just emotionally, but physically abusive relationships, and today the Lord helped them work it out, and today they are lavishing each other with the love of God one toward another. So God can restore even an abusive relationship. So therefore, we do not change the word of God because of various situations or circumstances. We have to be very careful with that because we're running to a time very soon where it is not going to be humanistically logical at all to keep the seventh-day Sabbath rather than acquiesce to the powers that be and say, all right, well, we'll go ahead and keep the Sunday Sabbath because they're threatening my livelihood, they're threatening my income, they're threatening my life. God actually says, I expect people to be so faithful that they are to be faithful unto death. And then they'll receive their crowns of life, Revelation 2.10. And so if God wants to go that extreme, quote unquote, on those positions, certainly we can apply the same principle to a marriage. So if this person has already gone through a divorce and, and, and maybe they were not aware of, of the nature of God's standards, God will meet them in their circumstance and God will go ahead and grant pardon where it is, where it belongs. 
But if we knowingly know what God says and we just go ahead and violate anyhow because of a very difficult circumstance, then I'm sorry, the word of God cannot change for any of us. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of God stands forever. And we cannot allow even our situations and our circumstances to cause the word of God to be changed. We cannot do that. Amen. Thank you. Next question. This is for um, Brother Mike or Sister Carol. It says, what do you say to someone who knows the truth, grew up in SDA, but feels strongly drawn towards the LGBT movement? You need a mic? Can you repeat the question one more time? I'm sorry. What do you... What do you say to someone who knows the truth, grew up in SDA, but feels strongly drawn toward the LGBT movement? Okay, so um, I grew up in the Adventist church, and I knew the truth as well. I knew that, I knew what the Bible said about homosexuality, about many different things, um, but I still chose to go my own way when I got old enough to make my own decisions. And I feel like no matter how much you know as a Christian, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, none of it matters. I can be as knowledgeable as I want to be. I can know the Bible from A to Z. But if I don't have a personal connection with Christ, that knowledge isn't going to get me anywhere. I believe that the only way to reach somebody, even somebody that knows the truth, is by uh, meeting them where they are in that moment, finding common ground, not necessarily bringing up their their sexual identity or their attractions because many times when you bring up somebody's issue right right at front, they're going to build up a wall and they're not going to want to talk to you. And I've experienced that for myself. So um, I feel that the best, the best option that we have is following the method that Christ used to minister to people. And he didn't first say, come and follow me. First he met them where they were. He ministered to their needs. And after he followed certain steps, then he said, come and follow me. And I feel like we have to use the same steps to minister to those, especially the ones who know the truth uh, but are refusing to follow it because God still loves them and God still wants to reach them. Right. And he wants to use us to reach them. Amen. Amen. Now oh, that was awesome. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. The third step was um, what he met them where they were. He ministered to their needs. He won their confidence. And then he bid them follow them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ministry of healing. Amen. Um, it'd be interesting to have a male and female perspective on this question. So, um, Brother Eugene and, and Sister Danella, this question is for you. How can young ladies keep a balanced friendship with young men their age? Mm. Beautiful question. So, what defines a friendship is what I would begin with. Um, and I would say that there are instances where males and females will need to be associating together. That's if you are in the same church family, that's if you're working together on a mission, that's if you're working together at, at, at your workplace. But just to have a general everyday friendship, I don't, I, I can't see that in everything that I've personally studied in, in the Bible and inspiration, just a friendship of, how are you doing? I'm not doing too, too good today. And unloading all of that emotion. That's, it's going to be um, bond building. So here's what I would say. Jesus 
associated with both males and females, but largely more males. So his ratio tells us something about our ratio. Does that make sense? He didn't have a zero ratio with females, um, but it was a lot less than it was. His general friend basis was of the same gender. And I believe that that would be the most careful um, way that we can associate one with, a, with another. Our general basis of confidence and of talking to and of spending time with really needs to be of the same gender because there is that mysterious bond that can happen between people of the opposite sex without much needing to be put into place. Um, we know that our natures are corrupt and we need the help of the Lord um, to keep those associations pure. And so it's really important to maintain a clear communication with your Heavenly Father and all time check our motives. So most times, females, my sisters, if you find yourself wanting to be in the association with young men or inclining towards their company, something is, is probably not right. But if you are together in a place where you're working together, you're on a mission together, there's you know, a group of people associated together, the council says, keep up clear barriers of reserve. Don't have special favorites. Don't give special tokens of affection. Don't have a, well, I'm, I appreciate this brother much more than all the rest of them. Those things are all dangerous. But in general, if you're having you know, group congregations together and there's a necessity for associating, keep up those clear barriers so that there's a consistent behavior between males and females all the time. I was going to just say one thing. Also, watch out. Um, this is something male and female interaction happens a lot. Uh, terms of endearment. I would, I would really like to caution that. I, my name is Dwayne. My name is not Dwayne Wayney. You understand that? Um, I don't call him that. <laughs> oh, she doesn't call me that. But... The point is, is that sometimes we make up nicknames or we use these terms of endearment. Terms of endearment are like sweetheart, honey, sweetie. And there are sometimes we use these terms towards each other. You know, I have every right to call my wife sweetie or she has every right to call me honey. But if I talk to some other sister, uh, I'm not going to refer to her as honey, sweetheart, or come up with these cute little uh, uh, pet names that sometimes that's all it takes to say that to somebody, you know, is, is, you know, if her name is Samantha, and I'm like, hi, Samantha, Mantha, or whatever, all of a sudden, she's like, he called me Samantha, Mantha, and it could go down this, it doesn't take a lot for people to go down these negative paths, you know, because the devil is like a roaring lion, walking, seeking whom he may devour. So the key is, is that if I'm talking to Sister Donella, I may not even call her Donella. I may call her Sister Donella. So why am I saying that? It's not that it's wrong for me to call her Donella, but if I call her Sister Donella, I'm, I'm trying to put up another verbal barrier to remind her of the relationship that we have. Very, very platonic and very, very much in a spiritual context of reserve and respect for who she is 
And when she calls me Brother Lemon or Brother Dwayne, it's showing a respect back. So please be careful about how you even refer to each other because those are little slick ways that the enemy gets in sometimes. Now the questions are piling up, so I think we're going to have to maybe we'll go reserve fast. yeah, two minutes per question, um, if possible. Um, now the next question, it says, my friend is transgender. She went from she to he, and I feel uncomfortable calling her by her male name. What do I do? Mm. Go ahead, Brother Mike. You know, I um, kind of held that ground also, and I thought to myself, you know what, um, it would be a lie to call somebody that's actually female a he. And so I thought that I had it all wrapped up. I thought that even because I had a transgender past that I would know how to interact with that. And so we were in Austria and there was this man who had had the full and complete uh, sex change, had the, the top end, what they call the bottom surgery. And he was six foot five with a huge forehead, a big Adam's apple and massive hands. And bumps. And so it was really difficult to know how to even interact with this person. And I felt totally inadequate. And it wasn't until I heard the story of um, a young girl named Marissa. And Marissa lived as Ray for most of her life. And she would get so angry if somebody would call her Marissa that her fist would clench and her, and her teeth would clench. And she would say, don't ever call me that again. And what happened is she was in really dire straits and depressed and this voice that she heard in her head said, you know what, you should just kill yourself. You're so pathetic, nobody would ever want you the way you are. And she was um, approved to take hormones. She was uh, lining up to have the sex change surgery. But she was so depressed, she couldn't even get out of bed. So she called to her only friend that she knew, which was a Christian. And her friend said, I don't care what you want me to call. I'll call you whatever. You know, just come to me. And so... Ray went out to uh, Colorado and stayed with her friend. And during that time, her friend just loved her. She said, you want to be called Ray? I'll call you Ray. You want to be called Marissa? I'll call you Marissa. But what she did is she prayed over her. And, and again, I think that, you know, Ministry of Healing that talks about Christ's method is you, you meet them where they are. They don't have your conviction. They don't, they don't understand or even relate to where you are. But you need to relate to them. And Jesus got in the ditch with me and walked with me out of that ditch. And so that changed my thinking. And I thought, all right. If that helps to keep the communication open with them, I would call them by whatever gender name that they want so that I could relate to them. And, you know, during that time, her friend prayed for her. And you know what? Marissa uh, decided to leave that world. She heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say, I did not make you this way. Psalms 139, talking about how I knit your delicate inward parts together in your mother's womb, about how my thoughts are, are towards you as countless as the sands of the seashore. And you know what? She started to heal because her friend was praying for her and calling her whatever name it took to get her attention. And now Marissa is living as a woman. She got married a year ago, and she just delivered her first baby last weekend. Is that amazing? So again, um, you, could, you could make that a big issue, and then you could lose the um, ability to relate to your friend, or you could call them whatever name they relate to and begin a relationship and a journey with them. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Now, the next question is, is it okay to watch R-rated movies just because it's common in my culture and I'm over 18? Is it a sin to watch those? The Bible says in Psalms 101 and verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. 
we need to follow the clear counsel of God. God does not want us to set wicked things before our eyes. If you're looking at an R-rated movie, you are going to see nudity, you're going to hear foul language, you're going to see violence, and uh, a lot of other questionable things. And so the word of God is very clear. Do not set any wicked thing before your eyes. And uh, violence is wicked. You know, uh, illicit sex is wicked. You know, all of these things are considered sinful and wicked in Scripture. So if we just stick to the simplicity of the text, God says, do not set any wicked thing before your eyes. The Bible also says in Philippians 4 and verse 8, whatsoever things are true, honest, uh, you know, just, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Think on these things. You know, that's what we should fix our minds on. So I hope that as children of the Most High God that we would understand, no, we're not going to put these R-rated programs. And it's not just R-rated, it's even the PG-13s, and even some PGs are questionable. So we just need to know what the Bible calls uh, wicked, and once we understand that, we should not set it before our eyes. Amen. And just um, as well as that, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it talks about, this is the, the the text that talks about God giving them over to a reprobate mind, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, without understanding... Covetous breakers, uh, covenant breakers, etc., etc. And then it says in verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And so not only the people that do them, but those that have pleasure in those that do them are worthy of the same thing. And so when we take pleasure in watching um, or listening to or reading any, any, entrance of that type of um, any of those mediums when we take pleasure in those things that are worthy of death it's, it's the same thing because it's happening in our minds and so I would even go a step further to say movies on a whole should probably be avoided um, because the majority of them in fact, anyway, whatsoever things are true, that, that, that got scratched out, right? The majority of movies are false. And then if they are true, how many of them are just and honest? And lo- you know, like, like, they just don't tick all those boxes. You, it's going to be very difficult to find one. So don't take pleasure in evil things, watching or seeing or reading but aside from that, follow that filter of Philippians 4 verse 8, which really cuts out all movie watching altogether. What advice would you give for a married couple who wants to improve their communication and understanding of one another, but also has drastic cultural differences? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And as a result of being a new creature, you've entered into a new culture, a superior culture. And that culture is called Christianity. And so when we, you know, because a culture is a way of life, it's a way of living. When you enter into Christ and Christianity, it is the superior way of living. It is the superior culture. So what we want to do is find out what is it that I'm holding on to that's cultural, 
but is not a violation of Christianity. Whatever you're holding on to that's cultural but not a violation of Christianity, you have every right to practice that. And you should feel totally free to do so. But if there are certain things that we practice in our culture, but it violates Christianity, then those are the things that have to be surrendered. You know, there's certain people who grow up in certain islands and countries where it's all right to walk around topless. And it's part of their culture. But when you come into Christianity, we learn you must cover your nakedness. And so therefore, in this superior culture, I'm going to do all that I can to make sure that I'm living in harmony with this superior culture, Christianity. Therefore, I'm now going to cover my nakedness. So you can learn how to do that as husband and wife. What is it culturally that I'm holding on to that I can still go ahead and assert and learn how to appreciate and respect the differences between my husband and my wife versus what are some of those things that culturally I'm holding on to but some of those things are actually violations of this brand new culture we are a part of, which is called Christianity. And as you go through those fine lines and you, you, know, you weed away and cut some things out and add some things in, I trust that God is going to show us how to work with each other. Finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul teaches a beautiful lesson in that story. He says there are many things that we have a right to do. But he says, but if it's going to cause my brother or sister to stumble, if it's going to embolden someone in the path of sin, he says, I will surrender that right for the sake of that soul staying on the straight and narrow path. Can't we do that as husbands and wives? There might be certain things that I really appreciate about my culture, but if it brings a point of contention between me and my spouse, then you know what? I'm not going to assert that thing right now because what's more important than me practicing my culture is living in harmony with my wife and living in harmony with my husband. You get what I'm saying? So these are ways that God can help us to know how to put culture at its proper place on the shelf, possibly the garbage, or to hold on to it and to exercise it in a judicious manner where it is all good and it does no harm. God can show us how to do these things. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And God who upbraideth not will give liberally to us on how to exercise his wisdom, maintain good communication, and exercise principles of culture that are not a violation of the superior culture of Christianity, and everything is well. God can help us with that. Amen. Next question. How is a man supposed to begin courting a woman? I think if... All right. Can you hear me now? Sure can. The... Uh... <laughs> The first question should be asked, um, did God call them to marriage? Um, when it comes to courtship, that is the area where you are on a, you're examining, you're valuing the situation. Can this individual complement my life work that God is calling me? Will this enhance my spiritual experience? Will it further the cause of God? And these are the questions that has to be asked. Um, but after much prayer, after much fasting, the first thing that a gentleman must do is speak to the parents, most specifically the father, because he is the leader. Whether he's a non-believer or he's a believer, he has to be talked with because he belongs, she belongs to him, and God has entrusted the father to the daughter. So you have to ask permission for his daughter in the hands of courtship. Now, this is what the Lord has impressed me. 
If a gentleman seriously desires a young lady, I would also encourage him, ask the parents before they give an answer, pray and fast for seven days to see what the Lord would say. As I will do. Whatever answer the Lord has given you, that's what we'll be in agreement with. As a result, because the reason why is that a lot of parents, they assume that the brother looks spiritual. But sometimes the Lord can give you an answer during that week of fasting and praying. There's something wrong with that brother. He has something that he's battling with in secret. So as a result, for a man who sincerely is seeking God's counsel and desires the step of marriage, he would sincerely instruct the parents, I need you to fast and pray. Tell me if I'm fit to be with your daughter. Because there are things that he cannot see also behind the mask. Which is true. So Amen. That's it. Praise God. Yeah. Let's hold on to it. Uh, next question. I did everything right. Was a virgin till I was married. Good conservative SDA and married an SDA. He left the church six months ago and then left me four months ago. What should I do now? One more time, please. I did everything right. Was a virgin till I was married, good, conservative, SDA, and married an SDA. He left the church six months ago and then left me four months ago. What should I do? Could I just say something? Go for it. What I sense in this person is that they're feeling guilty or like they've done something wrong. And, yeah. and the fact that they left you does not mean that you did what was wrong. Yeah. And I think that that needs to be pointed out. Um, could we just pray for that individual? Yes. Is that mm -hmm. reasonable? Mm-hmm. Lord, I just want to lift up my sister to you. And I just want to place her in your loving, confident arms. And Lord, for this woman whose pain is, is so great, I can sense it even in the question. And Lord, would you just put your arms around her and would you remind her again that she's a child of the king, that she's a princess. And that, Lord, that you love her. And that who knows the situation or the reason why, I certainly don't. But I pray, Father, that you would remind this woman that, Lord, that she honored you and that she did everything that she knew to be right. And I pray, Father, that you would value her. You would let her know her worth and that you would remind her, Lord, that you've got her and that you're going to see her through this very difficult time. And, Lord, that's the sad reality of what choice brings to us. That's the sad risk that each one of us takes when we um, invest our lives with another person is that they still have the right to choose. And even though she honored her commitment, even though she stayed, Lord, how sad that we can't guarantee that, that our partner will be with us for the rest of our lives. And so I pray, Father, that you would um, honor her and that, Lord, that you would be with her during this very difficult time as we answer this very difficult question for her. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing I know for sure, uh, there is somebody who can relate. The church is considered the bride of Christ. And Jesus knows what it's like to do everything right and to receive a very unfortunate payback. And I don't know what your communion life is like, but at such a time as this, I would encourage you to draw divinely close to Jesus in prayer, to look at his words, and to seek his counsel. 
because Jesus knows what it's like to be a faithful spouse, and yet the other spouse has not only committed adultery with the enemy, but has ultimately turned their back completely on the Savior. And therefore, Jesus truly, as Isaiah 53 says, is acquainted with our griefs. But praise God, he also knows how to comfort us. And my encouragement to you is, as Brother Carducci said, don't allow for a moment the devil to beat you up and make you think like this is your fault, you know, that instead of that, recognize that this is the result of sin. And that's why God has made an appointment one day to take care of it once and for all. That's right. And God will finally reestablish all relationships, and he's going to be the one that's going to orchestrate it, and it's going to last forever. And we're going to have a beautiful joy. And may God continue to encourage you as you go through this journey, and may you be found faithful. That would be my encouragement to you. Amen. The next question. As a male working amongst outwardly tough homosexuals who make insidious and bold moves toward you, even after drawing the line, they still ever provoke. What is the question, um, or how do I approach this? I'm thinking of quitting. Mm. What came to my mind instantly was I was thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah and the situation with the angels inside of Lot's house. And um, I also remember 20 years of being in that culture that um, my mind was uh, Genesis 6 verse 5. Every thought in my, inside my head was only evil all the time. I was only always looking for opportunities. And the gay community can be very bold. The statistics are shocking to understand how much promiscuity goes on. And so obviously there's a boundary blurred that this brother is saying, I'm not interested. And yet these these invitations or advancements still happen. Um, I would be open, you know, to somebody else's counsel on that, but I, 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 rec I understand that he's in a very difficult position. Uh, one of the things that I also remember being in gay culture is there were heterosexual men that weren't threatened by me, and I wasn't making advances at them, but they were okay and felt very comfortable to interact with me because they understood that they were not homosexual and they didn't have that attraction. So they knew that nothing was going to happen to them unless they agreed to it. So um, I also recognize that there's some homophobia also in the church, this fear of people that they don't um, that they don't necessarily understand. But I think that this situation is different. I think it's a situation where they're being approached and, and, um, and the boundaries being crossed. So I don't necessarily have an answer to that. You know, um, I had a similar experience. I had several encounters with men. Um, there was one encounter where uh, we were at the gym. Yes, this is. Huh? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there was one that literally, um, I really had to put my foot to the ground. And we were just working out. He invited me over. I had no idea, had no intentions. I had no idea he was on the other side. So uh, he invited me to his place, and, you know, he just popped in the DVD. We're watching, you know, just a film. And at the time, that was years ago. And then he kept going like this all the time. 
And that was not the first time, every time I came over. One day, you know what he did? He put his hand on my lap. And I just moved it across. And the Spirit of God told me, you have to be strong and say something. And this is a big guy. Same thing. I had to move my hand. I moved his hand off my lap. And then I stood up and said, please don't touch me. He got scared. You know what happened? I left and I never went back. I had another encounter. This was a friend that I went to school with, high school. Bray, Jordans, you name it. I would have never suspected. We were in college. We went to the bathroom just to use the restroom. And the Spirit told me and convicted me that he likes to always be around you. But I didn't take it at that angle. I went to wash my hands. And you know, I'm, since I'm like 6'2", I have to bend over and wash my hands. And the mirror's right in front of me. When I looked up, I looked through the mirror, his pants is hanged down. And I turned around and I said, what's going on? And he smiled and I literally ran out the bathroom. He was so embarrassed, he was afraid to talk to me for several, week, for several weeks. And then he approached me again, apologized, etc. But I had to cut off that relationship. And that was a friendship I had in high school for like literally three years. The only thing I can possibly say is cut these individuals off. But in this case, they work with them. So you're seeing them every day. I have a question. Go for it, go for it. Um, and, and I realize you know, yeah. this person may not answer, but so I, I have to say this in, in the form of an assumption. I thought I heard the question say that this is in the workplace. Okay, you need to go to HR. You need to go to human resources, and you need to report these individuals. You can, in Christian kindness, say, if you approach me one more time on this subject, if you even make me minutely feel uncomfortable as a result of what you want to advance, I am going to report you to human resources. Because that is what you're supposed to do at a job. Okay? So I would like to recommend that, you know, while there's definitely some good counsel here in, in, in in relation to taking a stand and speaking clearly and all those things, you are 100% right to go to the appropriate authorities. When you read Romans 13, it talks about the governmental powers and all these things, and it actually refers to them as servants of God. So there's a time and place that we can go to secular powers and allow them to exercise the appropriate authority over some of these type of issues. So I would like to recommend that you go ahead and say, look, if you don't stop, I can get HR involved, I can get the police involved. I'll get whatever I need to get involved to get you to understand. Don't you let them drive you out of your job. If God placed you there, then only God takes you out. But by all means, use every resource possible to put that situation in check immediately. Amen. Was there another? No? Okay. Next question. This is for Brother Lemon. It says, last night, Brother Lemon mentioned something that struck a chord with me. He said that sometimes God has to interrupt our plans in order to steal us away from our affections. When it comes to career choices, what steps should we take in order for God to start all over in us? Very good question. Um, you know, again, I, I made a reference today to the book Education, page 267, which says the specific place that God has appointed us in this life will be determined by our capabilities. 
the more that you understand your life work, your calling, which sadly most people don't understand of both youth and adults, but the more that we understand our life work, then every choice we make should be in putting us on the path of fulfilling our life work. So if you're thinking about a career, you know, if God has called you to be, uh, you know, a Christian attorney, then there's no point in you going to medical school. It's like you want to make sure that you're doing all that you can to go in the direction that God has clearly made known to you what your life work is. And then that's what you're going to use now to be the means of the choices that you'll make. You know, when you read Acts, the 16th chapter, when the men of God were surrendered to the Lord and wanted to do the Lord's will, they wanted to go to Troas. They wanted to go to other places. But the Bible says the Spirit of God forbade them. The Spirit of God forbade them. In other words, God kept blocking them. But then eventually they heard a voice saying, come to Macedonia and to help us. God, once you have made all the appropriate steps to say, Lord, I'm going to go down this career path because I believe it fits my capabilities. Um, I feel the appeals of your spirit to my heart. It seems like providence is opening the doors for me to go down this path. Once you see those doors open, then go forward and do the things that God is bidding you to do. And if you're wrong, trust that the spirit of God will forbid you. God will block you and say, this is not what I want you to do. What I stated to you last night was a quotation from inspiration. It comes from the book Ministry of Healing and the chapter Help in Daily Living. And it says, often our plans fail that God's plan for us might succeed. And so we can truly say all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. And that again, is a short, there's sure much more counsel that can be given, but that's what I would give for now. Amen. Thank you. Next question says, as a single person, how do we balance having and upholding standards while understanding and accepting that we will never meet a person without flaws? I've created many lists, my wants, needs, and deal breakers, but I fear falling into perfectionism and idealism. Sure. The beginning of the question is, as a single person, how do we balance having and upholding standards while understanding and accepting that we will never meet a person without flaws? I'm not sure if it's um, slightly different for a male or a female. So I'm going to answer from a female perspective. Um, the... The, the, hmm. the qualities that are outlined in a perspective um, life companion, you know, we have those from inspiration. And you can, from self-examination and from understanding more about yourself while communing with the Lord, understand what your peculiar character traits and personality traits alike and ask the Lord to give you somebody that would complement that. I, I do know, though, that it's the Lord that ultimately is going to make that choice. And so um, in the midst of all the list-making, which I would caution against a little bit, actually, but in the, in the, in the midst of all of that, to remember that whoever the Lord gives to you is who he has for you. And um, flaws and all, that's a part of each other's character building. And, you know, when both people are fully surrendered to God, 
um, then that process is just a process of, of helping to refine each other to more uh, greatly reflect his character. And so you're not looking for the perfect person. You're waiting for God to give you the person for you. And that will be the perfect person for you, regardless of whether they're, I mean, they're not going to be perfect, but it's going to be the perfect person for you. And that's going to be fine. There is something in inspiration I would encourage everyone to study. Living issues, side issues. The more that you understand the difference between a living issue and a side issue, both of these terms are used in inspiration. Living issues, whoever you're considering for marriage, you must be in harmony with that. A living issue might be, do you believe in God giving us the ability to have victory over our sins? Or do you just simply believe in cheap grace? Um, a living issue might be things like diet and dress, things that a lot of people call trivial, but they're not trivial. We're told in Councils on Health, very clearly, page 600, that it says that, listen, oh, uh, dress, it says, our words, our actions, and our dress are daily living preachers, either gathering with Christ or scattering abroad. Then she says the subject of dress is not a trivial matter. So we have to understand what's living issues. Whatever the living issues are, whoever I'm going to marry, we need to be in harmony with that. But then there are side issues. Side issues can be things like, do you believe the 144,000 is literal or symbolic? That's a side issue. Because neither one's going to put you in heaven. You understand that? There are certain subjects in scripture, there are certain subjects that make up Christian lifestyle that are side issues. And as a result of that, you can say, you know what? This is not something that I need to cut somebody off because they don't do it like how I do it. So if the living issues are in harmony, we can work out a good relationship. But if there are only some side issues that we have with each other that really have no bearing on our spirituality, our growth, our walk with God, or our true happiness and fulfilling of God's calling in our lives, even if we do differ and even if they might do something I don't like, well, that's okay. We can get past that and God can show us how to overlook those issues. So the key is understand living issue versus side issue. It helps a lot. Amen. Thank you for those answers. The next question is, what are your thoughts on oral sex in marriage? Is it in Songs of Solomon? That's for anyone on the panel. These are, these are very good questions. I mean, what are y'all going to do? Y'all going to answer it? Are you? I mean, I'm giving a lot of answers. I mean, I just don't want to... Does What's anybody have an answer? If you got the answer, just answer it. <laughs> Fantastic question. Um, what I want you to understand, let me tell it this way. We do not have a television set in our house. But there's nothing in scripture that says it is wrong to have a television set in your house. The issue comes with what you're watching. 
not the mere fact that there's a television set in your house. You understand that? There are things that the scriptures may not speak on, yea or nay, but for me and my house, we have chosen just not to have a TV set. Do you understand that? Okay. So when I say what I'm about to say, I want you to remember this principle that I just shared with you. That when I'm honest about what the Bible says and what it doesn't say, it has no bearing on what I do in my house. You understand that? All right. I have listened to many of the arguments that people try to use in using Scripture to say various sexual practices wrong or right. Some of them are obvious and some of them are not as obvious. As I have gone through Song of Solomon and all these things to address some of these questions, I have found that there is nothing in the Song of Solomon, there's nothing in the book of Jeremiah and other texts of scripture that individuals have used to try to make the scripture say that God is speaking against oral, oral copulation. But that's not exactly what the text is talking about. When uh, you use Sodom, you know, if you're using a Webster's Dictionary today, it may very well refer to sodomy as anal or oral copulation. But if you look up the Hebrew on the word Sodom, or you look up the Greek on the word Sodom, there's nothing in there that references oral copulation. So the big battle that's been happening in our church for years is, does the word of God say that oral sex is wrong or right? And the truth of the matter is, is that though we can make various deductions and so on, there is no text of scripture that I have ever seen to date that truly is saying that it's wrong or that is saying that is right. And that's why the general position that many have taken is it is left to one's conviction or conscience or something to this effect. And so what I'm doing is I'm being honest with the scripture. While at the same time, as for me and my house, we may say we just are not going to do certain things or we may do that. Do you see how we're circling back to the principle I shared with you? All right, so that's the key thing that I want you to understand. So I've seen individuals seek to do that, but the, 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 there is nothing that I've seen in the text that truly speaks to that. And at the end of the day, we have to let the word of God be the word of God, and we've got to be honest with it. And so that's what I have seen thus far. Amen. Thank you. Next question. I have a very close friend that I've known for a long time. Recently, they told me that they identify as bisexual. At first, it threw me really off, but after we got to talking, they expressed a lot of their guilt and self-hatred about their feelings, but they had given up on changing and accepted that was who they were. What could I say to encourage my friend and or do to help them? Um, okay, so the devil is uh, very subtle, and many times we don't notice the seeds that he plants into our minds until we begin to water them with our actions and then they blossom, and then we can't cut them anymore because they've gotten so big. And so when I came out as bisexual, I really wasn't, uh, wasn't sure what I was even saying. But the more I began to identify myself as this label that I have put on, on myself, um, it, it no longer was that I was bisexual, now I was a lesbian. 
And it was no longer that I was just a lesbian, now I was a transgender lesbian. And so the more that I began to identify with this title that I was putting on myself, the more that I felt ashamed of who I was, and the more that I saw myself being hated by the God who had created me. And so my uh, advice to the person that, in, that asked this question is, really the, the best way to minister to this person, to your friend, who is feeling um, ashamed of herself, who is feeling um, guilty for, you know, for the things that she's feeling, is to, uh, through your personal life, through your testimony as a Christian, to just show her how much God loves her. Because when somebody sees that God loves you, then they can start to believe that maybe God can love them too. And many of the people in the LGBTQ community believe that God doesn't love them because of what they are or because of who they are. But the reality is that God loves all of us because he created us. And even though many of us walk away from him with certain actions and with certain decisions, it doesn't change the fact that he loves us. It doesn't change the fact that he created us. And even if our parents don't agree with our choices, they don't give up on us just because we made a mistake. God doesn't give up on any of us. And so we shouldn't give up on those who are struggling either. And I think that's a problem that that we are seeing too often that because our friends are giving up, then we are also giving up. And we're saying, well, okay, if you're giving into this decision, if you're giving into this lifestyle, if you're giving into everything that, uh, that I'm against, then I guess I'm just going to give up on you. And uh, if Christ were to give up on us, then we would have no hope of a future. So mm-hmm. don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. But the most important thing is to show um, the love that Christ has for them through your life. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Next question is, if you are of marriage age and want to be married, how do you go about meeting your potential spouse? <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, a good place to start is always in the beginning. How did Adam meet his spouse and how did Eve meet her spouse? And um, that's the ideal. The ideal is that we are fully immersed in the work and calling that God has given us on our individual lives and that the Lord will bring to us the person who is best going to complement that work to his honor and glory. Um, From a female's perspective, the female is never to be the one pursuing. So I don't know whether it was a male or female that answered that question, that asked that question, but at least from a female perspective, you cannot be the pursuer. Uh, you can't be the one actively looking and saying, you know, Lord, is, is he the one? No, that's not your position. Um, so I guess somebody else can answer from the male perspective. But that's, in general, we belong to our Heavenly Father, both male and female. And so the prudent wife comes from the Lord. But in the same way, um, the Lord, you know, brought Eve to Adam. And so it, both just need to be secure in that individual calling in the Lord's life and then watch for indications of his providence as he brings to you whoever is best going to complement that. I think that um, in the church culture... We have made such a big deal. Um, For instance, I'll give you my example. So when I first came back into the church, I've only been baptized for two and a half years. And uh, 
when I got when I got baptized, we had um, we had one pastor, and then he left, and then we got another pastor. And when we got our new pastor, he became very close to our family. And I was maybe just six or seven months baptized. And uh, one day he came over to our house, and you know we were um, we were spending some time with him, getting to know him and his family. And one of the first things that he asked me was if I was married or when, when was I going to get married. I, I literally had just left the gay culture. So to me, to receive that question was kind of like, you know, like back up a little bit. But I think in, in, in the church culture, we have made it kind of like an idol in our lives, right? We're so worried about getting married and we're so worried about making families and doing this and doing that. When the reality is that we're not even sure if God has called us to marriage or not, right? And unless we have an identity in Jesus Christ, how can I be a wife to somebody else? You know, how can I be a wife to somebody if I don't even know how to be a daughter to to Jesus Christ? And so I think we first have to find out our identity, who we are in Jesus. And secondly, find out whether it's his will for us to be married And thirdly, make sure that you're prepared to be married before you go out looking for somebody to marry. Mm. So I think there's some steps that we have to take before we even get there, you know? Amen. You know, she just sealed it because uh, a lot of people who are feeling a longing assume that someone's going to feel that. Mm -hmm. So broken people love to be with other broken people. Or they sometimes like to be with someone who's perfect, as they assume. And I truly believe that as you age, the pressure is being heated. And Satan tries to bring about distractions like the encounter that you gave or social media telling you that the clock is ticking and it's going to be too late. When you don't have a relationship with Christ... What's going to happen is you're going to start losing faith and disbelief that God cares about you. And now you're going to start being, you're going to challenge your, you're going to be placed in a challenge where you're going to say, you know what? I don't think the Lord has great regard for me. I don't think the Lord respects or has interest in my preference or my desire. And when we have our eyes off of Christ, that's the danger that we place ourselves in. I always say this, too, for myself, that the Lord taught me that Christ is the husband that every woman should be with and the man that everyone, every man should be. And I truly believe that. It goes back to what you just said. And yeah. I just want to point out that Isaac was married at the age of 40, so. <laughs> Amen. 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 Thank you for those answers. This question came twice uh, from two different people, so I I think it's something that may be resonating with a lot of people. It says, is it lawful for a husband and wife to engage in sexual relations, excuse me, during the Sabbath hours? I'll repeat the question. Is it lawful for a husband and wife to engage in sexual relations during the Sabbath hours? All right. <clears throat> okay. I'm going, okay, so here's the point. There are people in my life that I respect gratefully, greatly, 
and that God has used in many ways to proclaim his words. However, when we get to the question of sex on the Sabbath, there are a few key texts that individuals have used to explain why it should not be done. Isaiah 58, 13, Seek not thine own pleasure on my holy day. Somehow, that verse has been interpreted to mean sex. I've looked at it in the Hebrew. I've looked at it in the context. I looked at verses before, verses after. I've looked at it in cross-referencing, and I have not found anything that says that the own pleasure is referring to sex, number one. So then the next deduction that is made is, well, it's pleasurable. And because it's pleasurable, it's your own pleasure. It might be the nature of how I study scripture, but there are a lot of things that I find pleasure in that I may do on the Sabbath, and the question is, so if I find pleasure in it, is it that I can't do it on the Sabbath day? Let's just move sex out of the, out of the way, because there's nothing in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14 that's speaking about sex. There's just nothing there. But what we're doing is we're putting sex in there because the word pleasure is there. So what I'm saying is, is that, okay, so are you saying that there is no pleasure that I should have on the Sabbath day? Because once I have pleasure on the Sabbath day, it's my own pleasure. You know, when you position the question that way, individuals begin to rethink their position. So number one, I don't see that Isaiah 58 verse 13 is simply saying anything you find pleasure in, you're not supposed to do it on the Sabbath. There are pleasures that God has made and that God approves, and then there are pleasures that God says do not do. We know that we are not to do anything of a secular nature on the Sabbath. We are not to do anything that even draws our minds towards the secular things of the Sabbath. Prophets and kings, page 411, speaks beautifully that God wanted us to guard the Sabbath day, that our minds do not go into areas that causes us to forget that it is the Sabbath. So those principles are all true. But that still does not negate the sex question. You see, again, as I said earlier uh, in our workshop, as Brother Carducci pointed out, most of us have been introduced to sex in a very perverted way. So as a result of that, we bring perversions into the marriage bed. And so for a lot of us, we treat sex even in marriage as if it's something where we say, Jesus, do me a favor, leave the room, let me do what I have to do, and, and God stands on the outside, and we do our dirt, and then when we're done, then we say, okay, Lord, now come back in. Sex should never have been looked, like that, looked at like that. So many of us have a very perverted view of sex that we need help with. So if we do understand, understand sex in its purity and in its beauty, then it is very much something that I believe that God can stay in the room because he's the one who made it. He wired us. Uh, so that's that. Now, the next one is what? Exodus 19? Was it Exodus 19? Yes. Uh, yeah, Exodus 19 and the third three days, you know, the third day. Again, you know, if, if I'm being honest with the text, the text also says that we are to make sure that we do not come in contact with anything that is clean or unclean, right? In Exodus 19. 
And then it says, do not come near your wives. So they're, they're spoken of in the same vein. It's, in, it's almost in the same text, in the same verse. So what many have deduced from that is because God is holy and his presence was going to be at the mountain, then because of that, God somehow said, don't touch your wives during this time because holiness is present. So if you have sex, it's going to be, I guess, unholy. These are the deductions that people have made. I believe that that is very poor exegesis. I believe that's very poor critical examination of the text. That is not what the verse is saying. If we're going to really look at the verse, what the verse is saying is, the verse is speak. there's something in the Bible, I'm trying to do it short, but it's hard. There's something in the Bible called parallelism. Parallelism is making one point, but expressing it in two or more different ways. Perfect example. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You just said the same thing. You just expressed it in two different ways. You understand? That's called parallelism. Making one point, but expressing it in different ways. The Bible's loaded with it. So what do I believe? I believe that it was parallelism in the verse. God did not want his people, when his presence is there, he did not want his people to be presented before him in an unclean manner. What in sexual relation between a man and a woman, or a man and his wife, could make that man unclean? If what? If she has her menstruation. That was a clear biblical principle. If the wife has her menstruation and the husband goes in unto his wife, the Bible says they shall be unclean. The emphasis of the verse is about being unclean. So from that, I believe we are far more biblical in saying the reason God said do not come near your wives, even though that verse is talking nothing about the Sabbath, by the way, but God is simply saying that do not come near your wives because if you do around this time and she is going through her menstruation, you're going to be pronounced unclean and you will not be able to participate in the holy services. So I sooner see an accuracy with that than saying no sex on the Sabbath. So when I look at it, again, this has nothing to do with what we do in our home. But my point is being honest with the text. I have not seen anything in Scripture that truly shows no sex on the Sabbath. I understand all the deductions that people make. But please be honest with yourself. It's a deduction. It's not what the text is saying. So we got to learn how to draw that line and be faithful to the Word of God. That's my answer. Amen. Next question. It's actually on the same topic from two different people, uh, two different sides of the corn. It's uh, about pride. So it says, is there a scripture to back up that pride is the foundation of selfishness? And then there's another question. I have an atheist friend who um, wants help and wants to know how to get over pride. So how can I explain to him without using the Bible um, about pride? Okay. All right. First question. So is there anywhere in Scripture that shows that pride is the foundation of selfishness? What we did in our study earlier today was we showed that the foundation of sin is selfishness. We showed that from James 1. What is it that causes self-exaltation? Because that's what selfishness is. It is self-exaltation. You're you're putting self above the Word of God. The thing that brought forth self-exaltation is what we called pride. Now, somebody says, okay, well, how do you show that? Okay, we looked at Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. We showed that Satan was definitely exalting himself. What we didn't do 
Uh, I thought it was plain enough, but nevertheless, what we didn't do was go to Ezekiel 28. When we go to Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel helps us understand that it says Satan's wisdom became corrupted and he began to exalt himself by reason of his beauty. He was looking at himself, he was thinking more of himself, and as he was building up his pride, this is what caused him to exalt himself so much that he eventually said, I will even dethrone God. So is there a scripture specifically that says it? I don't know of any one scripture that says it. But is there a train of thought through scripture that shows it? I believe the answer is absolutely yes. So therefore, if we look at Isaiah 14, if we compare it with Ezekiel 28, it was Satan's pride that caused him to exalt himself, which ultimately produced sin and caused him to have to be removed from heaven. So for my mind, it's that simple, but if, if it's not good enough for you, maybe we can talk about it afterwards. Now, as far as the second question, the second question was, repeat that. The second question was that they have an atheist friend who wants oh, to get yeah. over pride. How do you explain to them without using scripture? All right, this is just Dwayne's answer. You can't. I mean, I know there's people out there who say, oh, well, you can do it this way and that way and so on. But the truth of the matter is, is that I don't believe you can, you know, um, because atheists, wrote, the atheists function by a whole different set of rules. And, and Christians function by our set of rules, and our set of rules is the scriptures. So sooner or later, to really help that atheist see the dangers of pride, yes, I can tell them stories about, you know, self-exalting princes and kings and people of the past, but they could say, so what? That's not going to be my situation. I mean, that, that's, you know, when I didn't believe in God, I can assure you I was a very tough guy to win. And so, you know, I have learned that there are some people you can say stuff and they'll just go with it, but there's other people out there that's really difficult. And they're really going to put you back to the wall and say, well, how do you figure that applies to me, etc." So I believe that you, you really can't convince the atheist of the dangers of pride and the need to surrender it and overcome it without Christ. It's kind of like offering somebody peace without Jesus. Jesus says, my peace, I leave with you. Ellen White makes it clear, you, can't ex you cannot receive Christ's peace without receiving Christ. You need, you need both. So in like manner, if, if you want to show true humility, which is the only cure for this cancer of pride, you cannot receive that humility without receiving Christ, who is the example and the power source of that humility. So the way I see it, you all can go ahead and share your thoughts on it, but the way I see it is that you, you can't. You can't. You need to present to them Jesus. How you do it, you got a thousand ways to do it, but you got to get them to see their need for Jesus to really overcome pride. Amen. Thank you. We have a couple more questions. Um, one says, my hairdresser is a homosexual. How can you help someone who is a homosexual and not in the church see that God is trying to get their attention? Then another question came in related to this. How do you um, relate to someone in the LGBT community who says, don't judge me? Again, I think it's about creating relationships. And it's, you know, if you take the focus off of them being gay or whatever that is, it, and especially if it's a, a hairdresser, you know, it's an intimate relationship that you have with your hairdresser anyway. So why aren't you, you know, witnessing to them every time that you're sitting in their chair? But you don't have to focus on who they're sleeping with. You can focus on other issues and create a relationship with that. Um, and 
I think that the most important thing, and people really use this as a last resort when it should be our first line of defense, and that's prayer. You know, you don't ever have to say a word to your hairdresser about who they sleep with, but you can get on your knees and you could, you could set aside one day to pray and to fast for that person. And you know what? The Lord may not even use you, but he could use somebody else to actually, uh, you know, what is it? Prayer moves the arm of omnipotence. And you don't have the power. You don't have that kind of power at your disposal unless you're praying for that person. And so, again, I, I think that instead of saying the right words to that person, which you may not even know what that is, you can certainly say the right prayer in their behalf. And you can do it on a consistent, regular basis. And you know something? Every single person in Coming Out Ministries that has ever come and gone recognizes that somebody was praying for them. Um, and that's what brought them back into the church because I certainly wasn't praying for myself. And, and as Carol and I have both said that we wanted nothing to do with the God that we thought rejected us. So there you go. I think that's the answer is that to use prayer and fasting as what the Bible recommends, you know, to help influence people when you don't have the opportunity to say something otherwise. And, and here's another point that I think is really important is that if you act on your own, if you're not moved with the Holy Spirit, you're going to say something or you could say something that could actually push them further away from God. And so uh, without knowing that the Holy Spirit is urging or moving, really the best answer is to keep your mouth shut. Amen. Thank you. Next question. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. The question is, does a man leave the home once he is ready to be married, or does a man have to already be living alone and have his independence before he considers marriage? It's funny how we answer our questions with the text. We, you know, Sister Donella made the point earlier, you know, the Eden model. You know, if you, if you really look at Eden, it's the model home, it's the model school, uh, it's the model church, you know, and when you look at Eden, you find a pattern. And as we follow that pattern, we, I believe, are guaranteed, you know, the best of God's blessings. What do we see? We see that they were there at the home. And they were there at the home until they met their spouse. And then it was after they, you know, met their spouse, they established their own home. There are tremendous benefits of living that kind of lifestyle. Um, you know, you get to save money. You get to put away things. You get to you know, uh, keep yourself from a lot of temptation. A lot of guys, again, I'm going back to Brother Carducci's point. If, if you pay attention to those statistics, it is a fearful thing for a young man to live by himself. It is a fearful thing. I mean, because the, the, the world is wide open to you. You have very little accountability now. And as a result of that, if you're not truly mature in Christ, you can go down many negative paths. And so there's many benefits, certainly, of being able to be, be home as far as a residence. You can start careers and do all sorts of things, fulfill various callings on your life, but it's great to be able to have that home base, of course, with consecrated parents, that you have a, you know, a, a source of help and encouragement. Now, of course, you've got people who might be called to do specific things, where they do have to go away. You know, maybe it's a college of some sort. God does call some people to do that. Um, and it may be too far away to live at home and also do your various uh, schooling. Uh, or th there may be mission fields that God may call someone to, and you might live there for much longer than just a couple of weeks. It might be a few months, a few years. So there are different circumstances and situations. But the general blueprint model is exactly what we read right there in the book of Genesis, that that man and that young lady are home. 
Even though, again, you're fulfilling callings and careers and all of that, that's fine. But at home, and when do you leave that home and establish your new home is when you meet your spouse and you go ahead and establish your blueprint home, which, uh, yeah. Yep. Leave it there. Amen. Two more questions. Should a person in ministry step down if they are having marital problems? It depends. I would say so too. I would agree. Uh, my wife said it depends. They heard me. Oh, they did? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I have that. to speak up. I'm not used to it. <laughs> yeah, it depends. I mean, you know, it, think about what you just said. You said marital problems. You know, a marital problem being, man, I can't get my wife to put the toothpaste top back on the toothpaste. You know, that's a problem. But it's a very small one, isn't it? You're not going to step down for that. So you got to qualify the term problem. There's, there's all sorts of problems that are big, and then there's problems that are small. Obviously, if you are fussing and fighting with your spouse, especially if it's done in a public manner where it's no longer a hidden issue, but it's an open issue before the saints, obviously, you know, you may need to go ahead and take some time and to say, you know what, let's, let's take some time and, and work on our home so we can more effectively minister to others. But there are cases where sometimes you may have problems in the home, real problems, and yet God has not called you to relinquish your ministerial effort. But the Bible does make this point very clear. Uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his own soul? And when a husband and wife become married, we do become one. And so I want to I be mindful that it, it's not very sensible for me to assert myself in ministry if I'm losing the very one that God considers to be one with me. That, that's, that's just not very logical. So if, if I see my wife is spiritually going down and our marriage is spiritually going down, but I'm like, whatever, I'm the world traveling evangelist. I'm going to go out there and do it anyhow. Well, that may not be the wisest decision. And then it may escalate to a point that somebody else may have to come into the scene now and say, listen, you, you need to step down for a little while. So, you know, the Lord wants us to exercise wisdom. There's no one answer for that. My wife said it correctly. It really does depend. And there are circumstances on both ends. You can keep going. Sometimes you need to pause and you need to stop and you need to regroup. Amen. Thank you. Next question. I have a gay friend. What's the best way to deal with my friend when they specifically talk about their attraction to another man without encouraging them in the situation? How do I show them God's love in situations like these? I feel that it's okay as a Christian to set boundaries, even when it comes to friendships. Um, if you're not comfortable hearing about this topic, about their attractions, then I don't think that um, it's a problem if you let them know in a loving way and in a caring way that while you love them and you respect them as a person, your, um, your beliefs are just you know, not there and you you don't want to be submissive to, I don't know how to put it. You're not comfortable. Yeah, you don't want to be subjected uh, to something that you just don't agree with uh, for various reasons. I don't see a problem with that. Um, I do warn you, though, that your friend might get upset. Um, they might get angry. They might not want to talk to you. But many times uh, the Lord allows certain things to happen in our lives for various reasons. And you don't know if... Your, your, your testimony of standing firm in your faith is going to one day help them out, um, and they will come back to thank you. 
Um, it has happened many times, but the reality is that we cannot compromise the word of God to keep any friends um, happy or anybody happy, including family. We have to stand firm on the word of God and just know that everything will work out for those who love God. And he knows the plans that he has for you and I and for your friend. And so if you stand firm on the word of God and give a good testimony of, a, of the type of Christian that you are, um, in the end, your friend will thank you. Amen. Um, there are actually two more questions. If we could do really quick answers, sorry. Um, I don't like to tell lies, but yes, there's two more questions. It says, what would you say to a parent who has a youth that will not accept Christ even though you gave them all the warnings? If, that's, if there's a quick answer to that. Um, say the, say the question, question again. again. What would you say to a parent who has a youth that will not accept Christ even though you gave them all the warnings? Um, I would definitely tell that parent to uh, ascertain the cause. Um, I don't believe uh, most of the time that when you have a, a young, a teenager or a child that won't accept Christ, you have to consider you know, why. You, you've raised a child from the time they were young to old and something along that experience must have, you know, you consider, how did I react with my husband in, you know, in the past? You know, was, were there issues that were unresolved? Because sometimes when husband and wives have problems, um, the children, they partake of that. And while husband and wife are working things out, we forget, we neglect the fact that the children are affected. So even though we're moving on and we're fine, they're still damaged. And we don't address these things. You know, we just kind of move on. And years will go by. And then we wonder why. There's, you know, lots of reasons. I'm very compassionate to young people when it comes to that. Because I've been in situations where um, I've seen parents come and they say, you know, pray for my child, fix this child, speak to this child. And they don't realize sis, a lot of the reasons why they are the way they are is because we dropped the ball. We did not consider our choices in the past. Um, we're not consistent with the things that we're warning them about. So there's a lot of ways to deal with that, but that's just the first thing I considered. You know, first check yourself, make sure, you know, have I been consistent? And if you haven't, there is a point in time we have to apologize to the child. We have to say, I am sorry. I have not laid the correct example before you. And, you know, I think our children will respect that when we do that without excuses. Doesn't uh, say it's okay. It doesn't mean it's okay what they're doing. It, it, it's just addressing the wrong that you've done without any excuses, asking for their forgiveness so they don't hold it against you, and trying to move on from there. But you know, completely saying, well, I've, I've warned, I've warned, um, it doesn't necessarily deal with the, the problem, per se, because there could be some underlying issues. There's, there's two really quick points as well. Number one, accept the fact that you cannot force your child to know and love God. Right. Just accept that. You, you cannot do that. So our goal is not to try to force our children to love God and to surrender their hearts to Him. However, Understand your limits with your child. What do I mean by that? 
they find out how far can I go in imparting gospel principles to my child. So there are some children that though they have chosen to not surrender their heart to Jesus, they are still okay with you sharing verses with them, sharing inspired quotes with them. They are okay with you praying with them. Whatever the limits are that the door is still open for you to minister to them, you need to do it because Isaiah 55 tells us, uh, verse 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It will not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. If that child is letting you share the word, share the word with them. You're, you're gardening, you're planting seeds. If they'll allow you to pray, pray with them. Whatever are those limits that you can still have a gospel influence in their lives, do it trusting God that in time it will produce a good harvest. Amen. This, this last question was addressed specifically to Pastor Lemon. It says, I am a new Christian. What is the next step? What is the simplest and easiest, I'm sorry, what is the simplest, easy, effective evangelism method? Okay, I, I didn't hear the first part. I apologize. I am a new Christian. What is the next step? New Christian? New Christian. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. What is the simplest, easy, effective evangelism method? Okay, uh, what is the simplest, easiest evangelism, me evangelism method? Well, I, I would think right out the gate for somebody brand new, Revelation 12, 11, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, but also by the word of their testimony. You have a testimony. If you just gave your heart to Jesus, you got a testimony. And that testimony has overcoming power. So I would recommend to go ahead and be faithful, to jot down in your mind how God delivered you to get you to make the decision to become that new Christian and start there with your friends. Go ahead and give them a call and say, hey, you know what? I just gave my heart to Jesus. I want to tell you why. And you go ahead and you begin to share that. And that's how you can start. And the Lord will graduate you to higher levels in the very near future. Let's start with sharing your testimony. Amen. We want to thank all of our presenters for being put on the spot and being willing to be put on the spot and for giving us biblical counsel. We praise the Lord for you. Thank you. Now, all right. We're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to close with a word of prayer. Uh, after that, we have a couple of closing announcements and then we'll consider ourselves dismissed. So let's bow our heads, please, for a word of prayer. Loving Father, we do thank you for the things that you have taught us. We thank you, Lord, for all of the questions that have come in and supplying the answers. We praise you, Lord, for the privilege to get to know you as it is our privilege to know you. And may truly our lives be a life of continual obedience. And I pray, Father, that we will begin to love you more and still more, that it will become contagious and we'll want it to share it with all of those whom we come in contact with. Continue to abide with us, Lord. Thank you for another Sabbath day that has now gone into eternity. And though the sun has set, may the sun of righteousness continue to shine in our hearts. It's our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.